the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website, and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to this podcast at your favorite site, and be sure to give us a rating and a review. We need your support, and we need your input. I'll be joined in a few minutes by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland. We'll do the post-mortem on CU's embarrassing 26-3 loss to Cal before discussing the firing of CU offensive line coach Mitch Rodrigue. What are the ramifications? Is it too little too late? The first of many assistants to be let go? We'll then turn our attention to this week's game, CU's trip to Autzen Stadium for a game against the 7th-ranked Oregon Ducks. The Buffs are four touchdown underdogs. Is there anything about this game which could give CU fans reason for hope? Let's find out. Okay. Well, for better or worse, we are back. Brad is in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. How's Brad doing? Brad's doing okay. was a long football weekend, but... My fantasy football team, at least, is coming through here on Monday night. So, small, oh. tiny little nuggets yeah. to hold on to. <laughs> one st- small step for man, one giant leap <laughs> for fantasy football. Yeah. And, Neil, how are things in downtown Denver this evening? Well, the weather is fantastic. And there's a little life downtown here on Larimer Square in the mall. And me, I'm just kind of at a loss for words of how to describe my my buffs yeah. our buffs your buffs yeah well we have to do the post-mortem i'm not sure why i don't think there's any legal requirement there's no contract with the internet that says we have to do this but we're going to do it anyway <laughs> so 26 to 3 colorado loses to cal a team that was giving up over 400 yards of offense per game and was one in five with a big win over Sacramento State to its credit, but looked like the 85 Bears there for a while. Brett, I'll, I'll let you give your first impressions or last impressions or any impressions that you might want to pass along from uh, Colorado's fifth loss of the season. It was just stunning. It felt non-energetic, like particularly often seemed uninterested. Every bit of progress we thought we'd seen against Arizona, which 
may or may not be a better team than we thought they were based on how they played last week. Just went out the window. This this Buffs team seems unprepared, uninterested, unenthusiastic. It was, you can make an argument in a season with bad losses that this was the worst. Yeah. Makes you long for the 37 to nothing game against Minnesota. I mean, it's, we thought that was the, as low as it could go. And then the buffs plummeted to new depths. So Neil, 104 yards of total offense, 72 in the first quarter. And even that wasn't very exciting. Even then in the first quarter, when Colorado was getting a first down before punting, it didn't appear that the, the buffs were going to be competitive. What were what were your impressions? What was your take from watching the, the Cal Berkeley game? Well, good evening, Brad. Good evening, Stuart. Good to be here. Were it not for Brendan Rice's kickoff return, this would have been another shutout. I think at halftime, Cal said, you know, we don't really need to try very much. We just need to run the clock. And their whole approach the second half was to do just that, kill the clock. They ran, they threw a few passes here and there just to try to run their offense and improve. It was like a game in the first half and a scrimmage in the second. Uh, I agree with Brad that the body language of the team, especially at defense, has the look of a, a, a military force that's going into a battle that no, it can't win. And it's just trying to give a good account of itself uh, and to try to do the right thing. The offense seems totally and completely lost and without spirit, without any sort of creativity, without any kind of spark whatsoever. Many times I would, uh, when CU took a sack or had a penalty, you could see receivers down the field going, okay, I'm here. I was open and nobody saw me. I didn't, I didn't get the ball. I think there's a lot of frustration building on the team. And I think that's reinforced in part by some of the comments we've had in the press the last couple of weeks. So the most distressing thing to me was seeing the um, the dire straits in which that team psychologically now inhabits. Yeah. Well, and there were some comments the week before from Jerry Broussard about buy-in and Brendan Rice had quotes after the Cal game about buy-in or lack thereof. All the players don't seem to be playing. If they don't want to play, they should be leaving town. So that certainly gives some credence to the idea that they don't have full control of the locker room and that the defense and the offense might certainly be fractured at this point. Um, Much was made by the coaches about how the defense played much better in the second half. But I agree with you, Neil, that that was more – factor of Cal just wanting to run out the clock, wanting to get out of there without any injuries. The fact that they had two to one time and possession lead. The fact that the game was over in two hours and 59 minutes. It was actually under three hour game is because the second half, like you say, it was a scrimmage. It was just might as well had a running clock because nobody was interested in doing anything other than getting the hell out of there. Brad, the numbers 104 yards of total offense. We're talking epically historic bad numbers. Let me throw some stuff at you because it wasn't from 
Dave Platty. Dave Platty's notes, of course, are my Bible. And certainly you don't expect the athletic department to tout how bad their offensive performance was. But I was kind of cringing at the fact that in the game notes, it was more about whose birthday it was that Colorado had played three games in the 60s, not points-wise, but temperature-wise in October, and that they didn't have any penalties in the first half for the first time this season. That's something to be touted. But didn't say anything about the fact that there was 104 yards of total offense. So the crack, see what the game staff went to the books. And would you interested to know that there have been exactly nine games in Colorado history in which the buffs have less than 100 yards of total offense? Now, that might not go back 130 years because we don't know when those games were eight to four or six to five, what sort of offensive numbers were being put up, but at least back to the 30s. So at least going back 85, 90 years of record keeping, nine games where CU produced less than 100 yards, three of those in the last 50 years. 46 to Oklahoma in 2004, 61 to Southern Cal in 2002, and 76 to Stanford in 2012. So you can make the argument, well, we've done this in the last 20 years, three other times, so maybe it's not as bad. But the thing is, the 46 to Oklahoma in 2004, that was a 12-1 team that finished number three in the country. The 61 to Southern Cal in 2002, that was an 11-2 team that finished number four in the country. 76 to Stanford in 2012, that was a 12-2 team that finished number seven in the final polls. Cal came into this game with a 1-5 record with a victory over Sacramento State. So how can we reconcile or even have any semblance of hope or anything about an offense that creates 104 yards against a team that was giving up over 400 yards a game? Well, you can't. I mean, the the short version is there's no way to put enough lipstick on this particular pig to justify any of it. We got completely and totally dominated by a team that would get dominated by 70 other teams. Okay. That that's not a good Cal team. And that's not a good Cal quarterback. And he threw where he wanted to throw and ran where he wanted to run. And that's a terrible Cal defense. And we could not get out of our own way. The offensive line was atrocious. And that's where it all started. I mean, Brendan Lewis wasn't going to make any genius plays, but he had a little time to make them. Jarek Broussard you know, felt like he was breaking tackles from the minute he got the ball. We can't block. And if you can't block, you can't play football. You know, we thought this was going to be a moderately competent offensive line. If there's a worse one in the country, I've yet to see it. And everything goes from there. The team just collapses around them. And we know what happens. Once Brendan gets flustered, everything goes to pieces. You know, we can't run, take pressure off the passing game. We can't pass, take pressure off the running game. We can punt. <laughs> we do have a good punter. Thank you, Josh Watts. So, Neil, we've had this coming. I mean, this is 
the stats are not particularly new. This was a new low for the Buffs, but the team as a whole for the first seven games of the season has been playing well. The offensive line lost one player, lost Will Sherman to the NFL. You're our X's and O's guy. What was different about the uh, offensive line in 2021 that was different than the 2020 plus Will Sherman that created the first conference Big 12 or Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year in almost 20 years? Last time CU had an Offensive Player of the Year in a conference was Chris Brown in 2002. So Jarek Broussard was the Offensive Player of the Year in the Pac-12 last year. Four of the five people that blocked for him last year or blocking for him this year. What happened? Uh, I have two theories about that. I hope one of them has some merit to it. I think Frank Phillip isn't healthy. He just looks like he's very tentative. And I'm not sure how healthy Max Ray or anyone else is uh, of our tackles. And the tackles, I think, are the worst part of the problem, are the biggest problem. The second is that I think that the newly fired offensive line coach did not have enough time last year to destroy their technique. This year, it's a wholly different story. He's had over a year with them, and they're running his schemes with his techniques. And I think they've all regressed in terms of their ability to block. Part of it, too, third part of this theory is that we happened to catch a few teams that were not quite prepared, like Stanford and UCLA, that hadn't had a lot of practice. So that may have made our lines look better than they actually were. But I think that overall, just watching them block, they get overpowered. They get outmaneuvered. There's just nothing they seem to be able to do. And it's really sad to watch them place play not nearly up to their ability i think they have more talent than that so a lot of words i hope something in there of value yeah well as you mentioned the hammer dropped upon mitch rodriguez the offensive line coach they um, something had to be done this is the one thing that was done in the aftermath of the cal massacre second year of his two-year contract Back in the day, I mean, look at the hires, and you're looking at an offensive line coach that spent the last two years before he came to CU at Spanish Fort High School, and before that was seven years at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. We were concerned about this being the weakest length in terms of the hires last year, but again, since he created the Offensive Player of the Year, pretty much got a pass. Maybe we didn't know what we knew or didn't, you know, he was better than what we thought because obviously he got some production out of the offensive line. So is this the the panacea or is this going to help? You see any positive benefits out of letting go of the offensive line coach with five games left in the season? Do I think it will make the offensive line better? Not likely. The positive benefit is that you tell the team that incompetence will not be rewarded, okay? If you are going to teach young men, 18, 19, 20-year-old young men, that if you don't do your job, you don't get benefits, 
then at some point you have to hold your coaching staff equally responsible. And I, you know, we don't know what goes on in there. Maybe all the offensive linemen absolutely love their coach and this is going to cause them to lose a lot of their morale. But we sure ain't seeing it on the field. Yes, some of this is just scapegoating. The offensive line coach is not responsible for everything that goes on. A deep and almost complete reckoning will have to come to the entire offensive staff. But nobody in that locker room is delusional enough to think that that line was working. And at some point you have to say, yeah, that guy who's making mid six figures isn't going to get to do this anymore. Yeah, Um, well, he's still going to get paid. I mean, at least, you know, since nobody else is being hired off the street, the budget doesn't change for the the assistant coaching pool for the year. Rodrigo is scheduled to make $400,000 this year. It's the second year of a two-year contract. Made $350,000 last year, made $400,000 this year. He's still going to get paid. So now we've got two already on the staff not assistants, but we've got, I'm going to say his name right because I took it off the CU website, William Vlahos, as in Dose, so Vlahos, and then graduate assistant Donovan Williams. You think those two guys, Neil, will be able to, uh, not much is going to change, I would assume, in terms of scheme. You're not going to be able to bring in a whole new scheme. Do you think these two assistant assistants are going to be able to get anything positive out of this offensive line. They obviously had to know that their job, their coach's job was on the line. So if they really loved coach Rodrigue, they would have come out with fire against Cal. You know, I, I think something Brad said, and the question that you asked, I'll use in the answer, which is all the blame can't go to Rodrigue because of some of the play calling that was done that was not very creative, that was so the so same and so predictable that however well coached or not the linemen were, they really had no chance because the defense was set and knew what was coming, uh, both pass plays and running plays. I don't know the credentials of either of these two guys, but I don't think much is going to change. I think you're right. I agree with that. And together, they neither of them is Tom Cable, yeah. the legendary coach back in the Barnett era, where CU's offensive line dominated. You know, I I, I think they're just going to limp along probably for the rest of the year. Sorry to say. Yeah. So Brad is you're kind of hinting at the idea, and I think most Buff fans would believe that this is not the only head that's going to be on the chopping block that there would probably be some sort of storming of the Bastille if Darren Cheverini is offensive coordinator next year. Now he's in the second year of a three-year contract. So to fire Cheverini would mean he was out $600,000 for next year. This program of course is $18 million in the hole because of COVID. And obviously you got to go out and find somebody else, but safe to say that, there are at least one or two offensive coaches that are not going to be employed come December. It is difficult to imagine how Carl Durrell can not say that group is not working and that you have to start over again. Darren Chavarini 
advocated for that position. He used his popularity with Buff fans and with the Buff Hire administration to pressure for that position. And then he failed at that position. Unfortunately, that means consequences have to happen. And you could poll the CU fan base. And if you can find 5% in favor of Kiki keeping Darren Chavarini as offensive coordinator, that would be the drunk 5%. <laughs> That's just the short version of it. He can't stay as offensive coordinator. I don't like spending the money either. But he can't do it. He has proven he's incompetent at the job. And we know a guy that we sit with on the 50-yard line who might take things into his own hands if Chavarini is not fired. And he would not be alone. <laughs> so, Neil, if we have Darren Chivarini for the next five games, which might be possible unless Colorado continues to create fewer first downs than tackles for loss against, what could we possibly expect any different in the final five games with the same play caller, even if we have graduate assistants trying to figure out how to make the offensive line work? Is this just... <clears throat> The season's over and Buff fans should just mail it in and not watch? Or is there any reason to believe that this coaching staff, knowing that they're coaching for their jobs, which presumably they've known for the last month, will be able to come up with something that will at least give Buff fans reason for hope for the future? I, I wish I had more visibility into the program and to who actually makes the call sheet and devises the game plan. I have a sense that a lot of the offense is Durrell's and that he may be requiring Shiverini to call an offense that Shiverini probably is not comfortable with because he's an air raid guy. And when Shiverini had seemingly more freedom back in the, in the early part of his tenure as OC, it was an up-tempo air raid type of scheme. It wasn't all that creative, you know, from the fourth or fifth game on, it was predictable. But I think Shiverini has a great deal to answer for. I'm still wondering what kind of restrictions and requirements are placed on the offense by Durrell, because this seems to be the same offense that he ran at UCLA and the same that he ran at Vanderbilt when he was the OC. So I agree with Brad that, that Chivarini probably is not going to survive and probably should not. And that his, one of his big draws was he was a great recruiter, but he recruited well uh, at skill positions, not so well in the line. And if it's decided that we're going to go with Durrell's offense for the rest of the year, to answer your question directly, it's going to continue to be this circus out there, theater of the absurd. <laughs> if, however, they open up the offense, try some trick plays, California's uh, Bill Musgrave, Colorado native, I might add, did a fine job of calling plays. He ran traps. He trapped our nose guards. He trapped our uh, defensive tackles had huge gaping holes, 15, 20 yard gains. We don't do any of that sort of thing. So I'm hoping that these graduate assistants are going to be able to talk whoever is in charge into lightening up a little bit. I think I'm kind of repeating myself from previous weeks, but this predictable zone left, zone right, 
pass on third down, that it's going to be the same thing. Well, what do you think, Brad? It's, uh, we get Levante Chenault back from suspension this week. So if we uh, let Darren be Darren, will there be improvement in the, the offense of the University of Colorado? You know, again, we're not, we are not in the practices. We are not there. I don't know how you air it out when there's never any time. Good point. I don't know how you run a wide open offense when they're playing in the box and you can't block on a running play. I, you know, certain things have to happen to make any offense work. And whether this is Darrell's offense or Chevarini's offense, it doesn't work. And having another receiver on the sidelines that we can't get the ball to isn't going to change that. You know, it's not like Rice is running poor routes when he is given the opportunity. Rare as it is, he makes the plays. Another reason we have to fire the entire offensive staff, likely, is that without it, the transfer portal is going to look like a kindergarten recess. (laughs) I mean, you just... Everybody's stomping each other to get out of here. Um, You have to give those kids hope. That's the way it works nowadays. And so I don't know if it's Darrell's office and we have a big problem. If it's how Chevrolet calls Darrell's office, then hopefully we can change that. And maybe we need, you know, we'll see who who comes in. We're not going to fire Darrell. He gets at least another year. But the offensive coaching staff is going to be the people who need to go and they will. Yeah. Just briefly to add on Brad, I think the coaching hires and fires are going to be very important to try to re-recruit the kids on the squad that are tempted by the transfer portal. And they're going to have to bring in some good top flight coaches at every, every group, every position group on the offense in order to keep what they have let alone attract anything new. And if they don't get good coaches and spend the money to get well-qualified, well-respected, well-reputed individuals, the spiral will continue for another year, two, or three. Okay. Well, and all that are interested, cubuffs.com slash donate. Just feel free to go to the website, (laughs) start writing some checks because, uh, we're going to need some dollars in the coffers to be able to uh, attract quality coaches to attract quality recruits. Um, speaking of schools that have no such problems, nice little segue to next weekend's <laughs> opponent. That was good, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> well done. The University well of done. Oregon, Nike University, who just <laughs> announced that they're building a 170,000 square foot. Uh, athletic facility, not to replace their 130,000 square foot facility, but to supplement their 130,000 square foot athletic facility. So now that's 300,000 square feet that Phil Knight has donated to the athletics. That's, you know, average home is, well, smaller than 3,000 square feet. So that's basically a 3,000 square foot home for every scholarship football player at the University of Oregon with plenty of room left over for all the volleyball and soccer teams, you know, to their programs. But I digress. Now, I think, I think he just needs to go whole hog and build a dome over all the athletic facilities and get it over with. It's 
a 26 to 28 point line, CU at Oregon. So a couple of weeks ago, we had perhaps the best scenario CU could hope for is having a bye week and then playing Arizona at home, now followed by going on the road to play the best team in the conference and playing at Oregon in Autzen. As bad as it could be, I was at the 2012 game in Eugene. We were 47-point underdogs to number two Oregon in that uh, 2012 matchup. And Oregon beat the spread by halftime. It was 56 to nothing at halftime. The final score was 70 to 14. It could have easily been 100. So to be only a 26 to 28 point underdog, Brad, that must mean we have some room for optimism here. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. And so ends our preview of the CU Oregon game. They are more talented. They are more incentivized. They are vastly better team. They are playing at home. There is no reason for them to look past us. And they could look past us to the football championship and still not have a significant problem with our team. The reality is their defense, if we get 104 yards against Oregon, it will only because they are pulling players out of the people out of the student section to play in the secondary. There is no reason to believe that this will be anything but a humiliating, ugly, over-by-halftime defeat. And I I have not predicted that all season. I have not said all season that we're going to get blown out. I thought that we could keep games close. I had faith in the defense that would do that. This team quit this week, and there's no reason to believe they're not going to quit next week. Okay. Well, Neil, the football power index – at ESPN gives Colorado a 7.4% chance of winning. Oregon only beat Fresno State 31-14. They were only ahead of Stony Brook 17-7 at the half. They were only ahead of Arizona by five points in the fourth quarter. They only beat Cal by a touchdown, and Cal had a fourth and goal in the last minute with the chance to tie the game or even take the lead. So it seems like Oregon plays up to or down to its level of competition that they were up for Oregon against UCLA. They were up for Oregon at Ohio state, but against teams like Stony Brook, Fresno state, Cal and Arizona, that they don't really have any reason to care. They've actually shown that they don't really care. So if not win the game, does Oregon's past um, history playing against terrible teams, and we'll have to include Colorado in that discussion. This year, they've shown indifference against terrible teams. Does that give reason for CU to believe that they can even, if not win the game, at least be competitive and maybe and beat the spread? Well, let's do a little thought experiment on this. Is this a trap game for the Ducks? They're coming off a big emotional win, hard fought game against UCLA. They had to expend all sorts of energy and resources to win that game, and they barely did it. So they're going to come back and look at Colorado as, well, we don't even hit in practice this week. We're just going to take it easy and coast against these guys. So we've conducted the experiment. I'm going to say, no, CU has no chance whatsoever. Oregon 
when I think it was during the Embry years, they played in Boulder. That may have been the 2012 game. I think it was 35 zip at the quarter. And a lot of those long touchdown runs and passes, the Oregon ball carrier was not touched. I can see some of that happening again this week, regrettably. As good and as valiant as our defensive squad is playing, uh, I just think they're going to be way overmatched. And as Brad said, on the field, so, so many plays and snaps that Oregon can dictate the spread. Yeah. Is it better one of your, uh, what's the side bets you, you do, Brad? Those uh, were the, um, teasers? Uh, oh, the teasers? Prop bets? Prop bets. Prop bets, yeah. How, how about this for a prop bet? Uh, Kayvon Thibodeau's tackles for loss or CU point total? <laughs> Ouch. Yikes. Ouch. Uh, Considering that CU will struggle to score three points and that you know, our main hope is that Thibodeau does not actually hurt somebody. Yeah. I mean, it, he could have seven. He can have as many as he wants is the short version of it. Mm-hmm. Tell me Agreed. who's going to t- tell me who's going to block him. Yeah. Like, yeah that, that person is not currently on the CU roster. <laughs> well, and that's to your point to your point, Brad, last week against Cal, they're left uh, defensive end was even getting chipped by the running back on the way out in addition to being blocked by a tackle and still made the sack so against a truly dynamic player you see uh, our passer has no no chance really anything beyond two seconds yeah so all the odds seem to be stacked i mean if you're looking for one small thing to look for that Oregon is not great in the pass defense. So if Colorado could actually throw the ball again, that's saying something, but uh, Anthony Brown, a quarterback has been inconsistent. He does throw interceptions, but he also runs the ball well. And if Colorado is one proven kryptonite is that if there is a pass rush and a mobile quarterback, we tend to let them run for a first down. We can have a third and nine, actually have it look like we're going to have a stop, rush the passer, look like we have them trapped, and then they run for 15 yards in the first down. So Travis Dye set an NCAA record against UCLA. He scored touchdowns on four consecutive runs. Now, none of the four runs were more than five yards, so it just happened to work out that way, but he did set an NCAA record and score four touchdowns. I wouldn't be surprised if he had four rushing touchdowns against Colorado. So I'm not going to belabor the point, pretty much know what's coming. Neil, let you go first. What is your prediction for Colorado at number seven, Oregon 130 on national television, Fox national game. So Colorado gets lots of uh, publicity here. So What's your prediction for the Buffs versus the Ducks? Well, I think somehow the Buffs will manage to score nine or ten points, I think, against the Scrubs. On the other hand, Oregon, especially if CU is – excuse me, guys, sorry. They're going to be able to – if we play single high safety that Cal did through over twice to get touchdowns, Oregon can probably score 50 without really trying. 
Okay. So I'll, I'll go with 50 to nine. 50 to nine. Brad, uh, any chance that CU gets into double digits? No. <laughs> Sorry. I, no reason to believe that. I mean, nothing, nothing they have shown prior to this game gives me reason to believe that. I think Neil's being optimistic. I am. I'm being Pollyannish. I admit it, yeah. Brad. You're absolutely right. No, if did. I maybe we've. I think perhaps we avoid the shutout, likely on something unusual against the Scrubs. But Oregon will score as many as Oregon wants to score. This could get into the 60s, 60 to three. 60 to so, three. Okay. Well, if, if Oregon is still remembering the fake punt from New Heisel, it'll be in the <laughs> 70s. Well, and of course, the story being that. The new Heisel, the, the Cotton Bowl win, 38-6, to six, the 96 Cotton Bowl was what prompted Phil Knight to say enough is enough. How much money do you need? So it's actually Sue's freaking fault that Oregon is Oregon. So just can't win for losing. Any positive words you want to send us off with? How about Landman becoming the fifth player in Sioux history with 400 tackles? Joined, he's right now tied for fifth with Ted Johnson with 409 tackles. He's probably going to be the unassisted tackle leader. It's going to take past Jordan Dizon by the end of the season. So at one point, Brad, you said that uh, if you want to watch CU, not pay attention to what's going on in the game, watch number 53. He's still out there. He's still fighting. So Josh Watson, Nate Landman for first team all Pac-12. Josh Watson should be first team Pac-12. Maitland, and it probably should be what he won't be because they can't honor somebody on a defense this bad, even when he is, you know. If you put Nate Landman as a nine on a scale of 10, and he's playing on defense, it's a two. He's going to get dragged down from that. He'll be second or third team. Yeah, watch him. Uh, watch the fact that even at the end of the Cal game, he was trying to rally. You know, I guess we watch and see if there's any change in the offensive line. I guess we watch to see how the cornerbacks look when they're facing truly more talented wide receivers than we've seen since SC. Everything at this point is seeing how it's going to look next year. Yeah. Well, Neil, you know, how about Kansas versus Oklahoma last weekend? Huge underdog. You know, led for a good chunk of the game, actually had a good chance to win that game. Fell apart late, but, you know, little old Kansas, you know, gave – Number three, Oklahoma, all they had. So uh, any reason for optimism? Any positive words you want to leave us with? Well, there's no doubt the Ducks could look past CU and still win handily. I, I just want to commend Brad for his comments on Landman and add that Landman left the game twice with injuries and came back to play and still win. The guy just has a heart of a lion. He's an amazing player. He just it's worth the price of admission just to watch him because he is just about near the ball on every play. He plays three downs. I would say you've got someone in the same mold in Christian Gonzalez uh, at corner who deserves some recognition. Also his coverage has been great. So take some solace from the individual performances that you may see like the punting and two of our defenders and maybe Brendan Rice, if they're able to, to get the ball to him, enjoy that part of the game because there's not much else positive there. 
Okay. Well, probably the only thing more likely than a Colorado loss against Oregon is that Nate Landman gets the Buffalo Heart Award November 20th, the last home game against Washington. So let that be the final word. Gentlemen, enjoy your week, and we'll talk again next Monday night. Thanks for listening. Please remember to check out the See You at the Game website for my predictions, my tips for the Oregon game, which will be posted first thing Wednesday morning. A personal note, with Colorado football at a new low, it takes a lot to be a Buff fan these days. Our loyalty is being tested on a weekly basis. That being the case, you're taking the time to join us and listen to our podcast is sincerely appreciated. We'll be here for you in good days and bad. Here's hoping that there will be a few more good days in our very near future. So, until next time, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.